Florida Motorcycle Safety Society, and welcome to Think Bike, a podcast about all things motorcycle and the voice of motorcycle safety and awareness in Alberta. We like to talk about everything motorcycle related and bring you great guests to share their stories. So thank you for tuning in. This is our last episode with a guest. Next week is our finale for the season, but we have brought back my good friend, Mike Yakimishin, who was on with us last week talking about adventures that we both agree could be an hours and hours long of conversation. We only scratched the surface of, <laughs> of adventures. I mean, it was, it was great, but yeah, we only scratched the surface with so much more we can talk about. Yeah. But I wanted to, at the, at the start of the last week's episode, I talked a little bit about like how many bikes you've owned and, and the why behind that. And, um, you have this, <sighs> you're you're to me you're an artist with motorcycles you 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 painted my speedmaster for me um which was amazingly beautiful you did exactly we visioned it and it came out so pretty and but over the years that i've known you it's like i wonder what version of the bonneville is going to show up this week (laughs) you know um so you had mentioned last week you've owned about like 50 motorcycles or so how many of those have been projects um well i started like building bikes probably i don't know maybe 12 now i can't remember it's been a long time now it's been oh probably more than that but 15 years ago well it's more than that because we've known each other for about 15 years and at that time you had the you had your one Bonneville and 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 your Bonneville. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember the Bonneville had like three different themes when you had it. It probably had more than that, but it had had three major themes, three major, it had three major makeovers. Yeah. And and in the time that I had the Bonneville, I was also doing, um, I did a lot of, I did a couple Hondas, did a couple Suzuki's, did a bunch of Yamaha's. So I mean, building bikes, it's gotta be 15 years at least, at least that. So yeah, quite a few. What made you get into that part? Because you had already been riding for so long and you're a love affair for vintage and, you know, things like that. Yeah, I think my my love affair for vintage started when I bought bought the Bonneville. But it was um, what got me into modifying bikes. It started off with modifications and that was the Sprint ST. So I had this beautiful 2005 Sprint ST that I did a lot of miles on. Uh, I loved it immensely. And... um, you know, I'd always done cars. I've done car stuff quite a bit in my life too, but there was something so satisfying about how fast and inexpensively you could modify a motorcycle and the bang for your buck, like the, the reward is always big. If there's, there's always a big reward for that. So it really started real simple is that the Sprint ST had under tail exhaust and I just thought that you know back then only the ducatis had that and i thought it was just so beautiful to have your exhaust tucked up under the tail and um so i wanted to do some performance mods to the to the sprint um it was a it was a bigger bike the 1050 motor triple motor is a beautiful sounding motor but the bike could have used a little couple more horsepower so i thought okay i'm gonna do the exhaust so i did the exhaust and i did this triple can um exhaust underneath the back and just the response that it got and the ease of it doing it. And then the, 
there's a couple problems that came along with, with that exhaust. Like how do I get the taillights and assembly and everything back? So I just made a simple little bracket to do this. And then this bracket caught on and I actually was selling these brackets for a little while across, across the world because there was other people doing this to their sprints and they needed this, this problem solver. So we did that. And then, you know, you take photographs and look so beautiful. And then, and then I got the Bonneville and the Bonneville was just like an absolute catalyst to start to take that that little bug that the st1050 put in me to build and the bonneville was just like this blank canvas what color was the bonneville originally because i don't think i ever knew it in its original form originally it was just a straight up bonnie base bonnie black 2007 bonneville black that had um and those and those now Triumph puts that out as a special edition and they charge you more for it. But back in the day, that was the base Bonneville. So 865 motor, dual carbs. It had, um, uh, the only thing that was extra on that bike is the original person person who bought it went up to the gauge cluster that had the tack in it as well. So it had a tack and a Speedo where the Bonnie Black normally just has Speedo. So this was um, really just a basic bike and I brought it home and it was just black and someone had, you know, an ugly windscreen on it. And so I pulled that crap off and started doing some real basic pieces. Um, I liked the look of some of the old airhead BMWs and the simple black tanks with the silver pinstripe. So it started that I pinstriped it silver and then changed the exhaust. And then, um, and then I rode it for like that for a little while, just basic changes. And then. I didn't like the feeling of being pushed back the way the riding position was. So I, I bought different bars and then, then, you know, the internet comes along and, and there's like this world of easily accessible parts. Thanks British customs. Right. Well, <laughs> that's, it, it didn't start there, but it definitely was there. There was South Bay Triumph, British customs, new Bonneville. And then, then with the Bonneville too was because it was carbureted. I started getting into carbs and I've always known, I always had a good knowledge of carbs, but that in itself has become almost a lost art. So the ability to tune carburetors is something that's now ingrained. And then the ST was fuel injected. So I had the ability to do fuel tuning. So my garage to me, it was just this constant challenge to myself. And I was just sponging. I just, every time I would do something, I'd absorb it and absorb it. And then next thing you know, there'd be people just showing up with their Thruxton's and Bonneville's and Speedmasters at my back and like, Oh, can you do this? Can you do that? And so we just, you just meet all these people because you're doing stuff for them. But the Bonneville, I mean, it went through like three, four major iterations. Uh, the first one was just sort of starting down that cafe path. The, the Give credit where credit is due. Like Triumph really reignited the cafe racer scene with, with the Bonneville and other people followed. But really it was the release of the 2000 uh, new Bonneville, the Hinkley Bonnevilles that really sort of reinvigorated that cafe scrambler bobber scene. And it just sort of exploded in the mid two thousands and the late two thousands. And so, uh, yeah, like it, then what did I do to that bike? So then I, I think the golf couple, was, no, the golf was later. I did, was- I did a British, I did a Jack, union Jack flag in black and silver on the tank um then i went and adapted vintage toga pipes 
uh, exhaust mufflers for it, sent a picture to Triumph Canada. Triumph Canada said, we want that in our booth. So it started making the rounds in the Triumph booth at the motorcycle shows in Calgary and Edmonton, which is great. It was winter storage, perfect winter storage for it. <laughs> and then, um, then I took it a step further. I went with low bars and uh, started bobbing fenders, started doing some other stuff. And then I started, I did a black and gold version, mm-hmm. which is um, a black and gold pure cafe racer, which I took pictures of. And that one was featured in Return of the Cafe Racers magazine in Australia, of all places. And if you go onto their website, it's still there. Um, and then that made the rounds for a little while. And at the same time, I was building a Suzuki GS400, a 1977 Suzuki GS400 that I bought out of a barn, and it was sitting in the corner of the garage for a long time, back when you could actually find barn finds. And um, I had just watched Steve McQueen's Le Mans movie, and Steve McQueen was such a big Triumph guy in the Sunday Scrambles, and I wanted to do sort of an homage to the Porsche 917 that was raced in Le Mans, so I did a full golf bike um that was one beautiful was, that one was uh pretty crazy it 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 took there's a lot a lot of work into that bike there was quite a few hours into that bike and then it uh yeah it was beautiful that one was a beautiful bike i just want to say about that one so people understand like when you're building modifying you're doing absolutely everything yourself yep. including the paints i mean yeah. sanding everything down yeah. building it back up and yeah. i remember that golf one just the paint on it was stunning stunning yeah. i do do everything from paint to mechanical to um you know metal work to if i have to fabricate something i fabricate something um so yeah i did i did do all of that that bike was really popular I rode it for a couple of years like that. At the same time, though, I was starting to get into just other variations of machines. And even during the time that I had the Bonneville, there was lots of bikes coming and going. I mean, I did the um, the CB Honda seventy one Honda CB three fifty that I that had eleven hundred kilometers on it. And like eleven hundred, who has a bike for that long? That only puts eleven hundred kilometers, and yet I had to buy it in baskets. Like it was, it was a basket case. It was a frame and a motor, and everything else came in totes. Um, so I built that bike. There was a couple of a GS750. There was a GS400, and then I built a sister bike. I I had done the GS400 as a sort of a just a nice clean uh, road bike, and then I decided I was going to turn it into a cafe racer as well. So I had the sister, and so I did that bike in the full martini racing scheme. So the GS400 was probably one of my. It was up until that point my most ambitious build because that was um, all hand hand built seats, hand built. There was so much tin work. There was uh, you know a nineteen what would it have been a nineteen twenty eight nineteen twenty nine model A taillight Frenched into the into the seat um, cowl. There was and then the paintwork was you know white with all the martini decals with all the the blue and the red and the black and the gold all done like the old Porsche martinis. So at one point, those two bikes, uh, tributes to Le Mans racing were in the garage and they were really beautiful machines. They were a lot of fun. Where does the inspiration come from? Do you see the bike and then see the vision or do you have a vision and find the bike? That's a good question. I, sometimes it's a bit of both. I don't know. Sometimes it's a bit of both, you know, when I, with, 
it has to make logical sense to me. And my, and really my main goal when I build these bikes is to have it done to a level that somebody thinks the factory made it right. So that everything looks like it's factory. So I don't debadge. I don't, um, I don't try to hide what the bike actually is. I try to make it in these cases, these were all triumphs. Well, Triumphs, there's a Suzuki, but if you take the Bonneville specifically, I try to make it look like it was something that Triumph Hinkley made as a special edition. And people are looking for the number. Okay, where's where's the one of whatever number on it, right? So that's the level I try to do it at. Um, but where does the inspiration come from? I mean, I think in the case of the Le Mans bike, it was very simple to me that it was, I was, I was, I, I love Steve McQueen. I love that he rode Triumphs. And my favorite movie was... Le Mans by him. So that one was a natural for me. When I, when I decided to redo the GS 400 and turn it into the martini bike, it was because I had done the golf bike. And I thought how cool would it be to have these two very vintage, well, in the case of Triumph, it wasn't vintage, but in, in the Suzuki's case, I wanted it to be period correct. So everything on it was seventies period correct. And if it wasn't, I built it, I made it, I fabricated it from scratch. So it had to look very so like the mufflers were cocktail shakers because back in the day that was the muffler that people would put on when they were pissing around with bikes and trying to make something new they would put a cocktail shaker on there so mine were upswept cocktail shakers it just had to be very period correct and i think maybe that's what drives me around the bend that's what makes me kind of nuts is that it is that it has to look like that and it's never one detail. It's always the sum of details that makes that makes the bike. Yeah, you are a very detail-oriented person. You do not put out work that looks shoddy in any way. It's always very refined, always clean lines, always very finished, very polished. And it, like I said, it's, it's like you're an artist when it comes to motorcycles and you put so much effort into it. What has been your favorite build? Well, probably the bike I turned the Bonneville into because when I decided to sell it, I didn't want it to be, I didn't want to sell it as a Le Mans, as the Le Mans bike. So I remember, so I, I went and built, and I've done two, two scramblers. And so the finished product, when the Bonneville, when I scrambled the Bonneville, um, it turned out so stunning and so beautiful and it was such a blast to ride that it was probably my favorite build it was you know i did it in burnt orange and cream it had knobby tires and it was again i was trying to build a very period correct period correct scrambler so this this so when uh, if we if we want to open up this can of worms when we if you look at the modern scrambler from triumph it, like the, your scrambler it's it's a version of what they used to race it's it's an homage to what they used to race but they changed the engine from a 360 firing degree to 270 to give it a more pop 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 sound and so when i built my scrambler i based it on a bonneville which has the 360 firing order because that's how it would have been done back in the day so back in the day somebody would have bought a street bike they would have added knobby tires they would have you know tried to get this tried to get the exhaust off the ground they would have put a little skid plate because they were going to go do sunday scrambles so i built this bike to be like that high mount exhaust 360 degree engine and it was a very challenging build but it did turn out absolutely beautiful. And it's probably one of my favorite bikes that I built. And maybe second to that was the, um, 
XS400 scrambler that I built two years ago, the yellow and white, uh, which came from an XS400 special, which had a goofy frame on it. So there was a complete rear subframe and seat and a whole bunch of other stuff like that to make this bike uh, scrambler. And it was just, it's 400 small CCs was just a blast ride. So between those two, it might have been my two favorites. So when you let them go, do you miss them and want them back? No, I don't even think <laughs> no. twice about them. No, really? no, I don't. I, 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 the Bonneville went to a mutual friend of yeah. ours. So I know where it is and it's, it's in good hands. Um, the, the XS 400 scrambler ended up going down to Calgary to just a beautiful human of a fella from, um, uh, from actually from uh, overseas who, who bought it and just loved it. And it just reminded him of him of home because back home they had a lot of, uh, a lot of small 400 CC Yamaha access. So he loved it. So it was just, it's um, no, it's kind of like I build them to a certain degree. They are you know, to a certain standard, to a certain level. Uh, I treat them as art. You you say that I build a piece of art. So thank you. That's, that's very kind of you, but it, it is, I also treat them as, as canvases and as pieces of art and they're never meant to hang around so when they go they go i always build them when i buy them and build them it's it's there's usually an intent so with my xs650 i bought to keep so that one's a beautiful build that i finished last year um but i intended to keep that so and ride it and i do and i love that machine so and i'll love it until i don't and when i don't then it'll uh, be tough that'll be a tough one to sell but <laughs> just because i love the character of the bike and it's just a very beautiful bike it, it might end up being like my bonneville and take on different forms every couple of years so uh yeah no i don't i don't miss them they go to they usually go to collectors or good homes the martini bike went to a restaurant and was sitting in a restaurant for a while then went off to a then it was sold again to a collector and that's just generally what happens so it's it's pretty good well, it's nice they find good homes. Hopefully. <laughs> so when you're building, and we touched on this a little bit in last week's episode about like you never skimp on like kitting out your bikes. Like no. what are some of the things that like for the for the novice builders out there sure. that are just sure. getting into this, like what are some like key factors they really need to pay attention to to ensure the bike is safe? Because you are putting these bikes in other people's hands. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's there's a handful of things. You know, when when people build a car, right? They get an old vehicle or whatever, they generally build it to a higher standard than what came out from the factory. So nobody, nobody buys a car and says front brakes are stupid. I'm going to remove front brakes because I don't like front brakes and I'll just run on the rear brakes. But in motorcycle world, they, they tend to do that. And this is, if it's going to be a trailer queen or just something that goes from show to show to show and is not ever meant to really be ridden hard, that's one thing. But if it's something that's going to be ridden every day, always look to improve from what the factory did, especially if you're starting with an old bike. So, so everything that I build, as we mentioned, I want it to look like it came from factory, but I want it to be better than factory. So stuff not to skimp on brakes, never skimp on brakes. They save your life every single day. And if they don't save your life, they save somebody else's life. So never, ever skimp on brakes. And please, if you are going to cut a frame, my God, know how to weld or find somebody who knows how to weld and make sure you're you know what you're cutting 
I've seen so many bikes, these, these flat rattle can things that somebody just buys a barn find, they cut off the rear end of the frame, they put a Springer seat on it, they rattle can black, everything black. It's dangerous. Frames are the integrity of the bike. Frames are built by engineers that allow the bike to deal with the horsepower and torque and, and, and different stresses that happen when you're on the road. So when you see your frame goes back and your frame makes a circle, and so this for the we're not talking about subframe specifically. The subframe is the piece that generally your seat sits on. So you have your main frame where your engine is based and your tank sits on top of, and the subframe is where the seat and stuff sits on. Don't just cut those. Don't just take a grinder, cut it off, put on a Springer seat or glue on a seat and think that you're done because what you've done is you've taken away torsional rigidity from that bike. So where that makes a full loop, you have shock mounts usually, and those shocks are constantly pushing that frame one way or the other. Your shock absorbers move up and down a million times in one kilometer. One kilometer is a million movements in a, in a set of shocks. Wow. So if you're sitting there and you've got a million tiny little movements in one kilometer and you've cut that frame, you've weakened that frame substantially. So if you're going to take a bike that you need to do, you want to do frame changes on, make sure that you're, that you're improving or bettering on the frame that you're cutting away. So in the case of the, the scrambler that I built in the XS 400, it was an XS 400 special. So that was in the goofy eras in the late seventies when, when Japanese manufacturers were making these quasi cruiser bikes and the subframes had a big dip in them to give them this sort of low seating position because they kind of wanted to compete with Harleys, but they weren't really Harleys. So they had this weird sort of Japanese cruisery kind of not standard look to them. And quite often people want to lop, lop those off. So in my case, I'm the same way, right? I, I didn't want this, this dip in the seat because I wanted, I wanted the bike to have, to have lines that were nice and level across. So I kind of, when I build a bike, my basic design is I want the bottom frame rails to be parallel with, with the ground. And I want the tank and the seat to be parallel with those bottom frame rails. So when you have, when you get that line, it, it, the, the human mind sees, sees, finds comfort in those lines and, and it's appealing, right? It's like four, four time music. The bump clap music is so popular because it's just something that is, comes natural in our own mind as, as a natural beat. Well, it's the same with those types of lines. It just comes natural. So if you're cutting off a frame or if you're changing a frame, you really want to make sure that you're gusseting where you're supposed to be gusseting. You're having a continuous loop so that you don't lose side to side rigidity. You want to make sure that where your shocks mount, you have gussets there and you, you, you kind of want to over-engineer that. And if you're not a welder, don't weld it, get somebody, <laughs> get somebody to weld it for you. Like get a welder who can actually do the job right. Because those welds become so integral to the actual integrity of the frame. Yeah, and our our welders out there are like, yes, Mike, exactly. Get exactly. us professionals. Well, that's to what do I it. mean. Get it, get yeah. it, get it. And you know what? And 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 all of the put a note on Facebook in the Alberta Motorcycle Association or Alberta Riders Group page or something. Hey, need a welder? 
pay you pay you a case of beer or whatever you want to come weld this up for me and you'll you'll have people saying absolutely i'll be there well, so it's, the, it's the nature of the community exactly i mean <laughs> look at look at all the help you've given me over the years we we painted my speedmaster you helped me learn mechanics on my speedmaster when i had the daytona to race it we got the carbon fiber exhaust you swapped yep. it out and mapped it like yep. There are people out and I see you at like, cause we're both based in Edmonton. So yep. I see you out at the E-Town Remlers events and, and you're always like, you know, somebody comes and grabs, Hey, can you come take a look at this? And you're always giving advice and like, that's what the community is. And yeah, it's fantastic. Absolutely. So tips wise. So, um, yeah. you know, cause we're, we're uh, nearing, Oh, we're going to talk next year. I swear to God, we, we have so much more to talk about. It's we're end of season Well, we're, we're getting close to end of season and you were there for me to help me through how to winterize my, my carb Speedmaster back yeah. in the day for the first yeah. times. Yeah. Um, end of season, your, your advice, cause you have like, I trust you, I trust your input and you know that everybody has their own way of doing it. Winterizing. Sure. What are some of the basic steps for winterizing? It's going to really depend on on the bike itself. But if you want, if we're going to speak in really general terms, if it's liquid cooled and you're not in a heated garage or a heated storage, make sure your coolant can withstand the minus forty degrees. Because if it doesn't, it'll, it it could crack a it could crack your heads or crack your block. So you just want to get a coolant tester. Make sure your coolant is is up to the minus forty. Uh, put air in all your tires. Make sure your tires are all full. You don't want them to get. Um, uh, sort of flat spots from sitting. If they're low on air, they'll get a little bit of a flat spot. And the first thing you want to, last thing you want to do on your first ride of the season is get disrupted by a flat spot and end up on your butt, right? So uh, full air. And uh, if you have two, if you're riding two strokes, drain the carbs. Two stroke oil does not last well over winter. It'll turn into gum. Um, generally on gasoline motors, you can get away with not draining your carbs because our, you're not storing it for that long. It's six, it's, you know, five months in between runs. But uh, if you have the ability drain your carbs too, and you can do that real easily. Do I just turning off your fuel taps, letting your bike run and it'll just, it'll just run on what's in the carbs. And when it stalls out, your carbs are empty, or you can just generally most float bowls have a little bit of a, have a little drain screw and you can just open up the drain screw, catch the gas and they'll be empty from there gas i always fill the tank with whatever non-ethanol based gasoline i can put in uh, even if it's regular it's okay as long as it's non-ethylene if it's not ethanol based so just uh yeah keep a full tank of fuel in there so you don't have any room for evaporation and condensation and keep rust out of your tanks and then yeah cover them up take the battery out put the battery on a little trickle charger you can get them many many different places you don't need to have anything fancy just a little wall trickle charger that We'll just put, uh, you know, automatically put a couple amps to it whenever the whenever the battery needs it, and um, wrap it up, give it a hug, and every once in a while, go tell you love it, <laughs> and get ready for spring or do the reverse in spring. Yeah. So, couple couple things um, with that. So I run a lead off my battery so I don't have to remove it and plug that in. That's all good. Absolutely. Um, And then there's always the constant debate on fuel stabilizer. I'll be honest. I've never used it. I always just put a full tank of fuel in there. Um, I can see why you'd want to use it if you, if you were not putting a full tank, but I parked them all with a full tank. Um, When you park them with a full tank, there's very, very little room for for oxygen and for evaporation. So 
you know, I, debate. Sure, I'm sure that I'm sure we could have a comment debate on whether you should or shouldn't. Um, I never have, to be totally honest. I just I just use full tanks and and sit them. Which is funny because I'm the complete opposite and have every every year. But I mean. We both have never had issues come spring firing up bikes. And uh, the other big, um, okay, back to tires, because tires are like the most the, important thing on a motorcycle. They're your lifeline. So overinflate or just inflate no. to full? No, I inflate to, I inflate to what, what your, what your recommended okay. PSIs then, are. So now look, there's two different things. There's going to be the PSIs that you ride at because that's what you're most comfortable with. And maybe you run a 38 front and a 32 rear or a 36 rear and a, you know, whatever, because, because when you ride, you find a level of comfort, but those are always generally within a PSI or two of what the recommended is. But if your recommend PSI is, is 40 PSI, put 40 in it and just leave it. And that would be the recommendation on the tire because on my scrambler frame, it actually has the recommendation of what I should ride the bike at. Right. And I use the, I use the one on the frame. Yeah. Um, and then tires again, uh, storing in on concrete. Okay. There's a lot of people say you should put like a, put some carpet down and and gives your tires a little bit of a break. Sure. Never done it. (laughs) I mean, and look, I guess there's a difference here too, right? Are you storing it for two years or are you storing it for five months? Yeah. You know, if, if you're talking about long-term storage, then you know what? Probably the best is, is to stick it on a small, a small stand or on wheel stands. Um, for my sport bikes, when I store them, I had front and rear wheel stands, but we're never, for me, I'm never storing anything long enough that's going to have any major detrimental side effects to it sitting there. It's stored from the, first day it snows to the first day that it's, that it's warm enough to ride, whether there's snow on the ground, you know, but, but the roads are clear for me. So that's kind of, you know, long-term storage is, is different, but winter storage, you know, sure. You can put it on carpet. You can put it on cardboard. You can put it on plywood. You can do give your tires a break. Yeah. You know, you're talking about radials. This isn't old bias plies. It's not anything like that. But at the same time, if that's somebody's habit and that's what they're comfortable with, they're not harming anything. That's great. If that's what you're comfortable with, do it. Well, Absolutely. Tires have um, come a long way. Oh my gosh. So long, yeah. so long, so yeah. long. I mean, even the, on my vintage bikes, I'll run vintage versions of the tires that they originally came with. So I have Dunlop K seventies on my XS six fifty, but the Dunlop K seventies of today, despite having exactly the same tread pattern of the Dunlop K seventies of 1977 are leap years ahead like that bike is so stable and so smooth and you can ride the absolute face off of that bike on those old vintage redone tires. And you would think they were modern tires. So if you want to have a discussion of tires, we could probably have a whole podcast on what type of tires to buy with what kind of bike, but we could do that again. We did that with Riverside, but I mean, there's always times to revisit because technology (laughs) improves all the time. Sure. For sure. It does. Yeah. And there's some tires that just have naturally bad reputations and you don't get a bad (laughs) reputation without a reason. So, but yes, modern tires today are, are generally pretty darn good. And on that note, um, thank you very much for helping us uh, close out this season. We have our season finale uh, next week, which I'll be joined by our producer, Bryn Griffiths for, I know he's like so excited for it. Um, 
but I mean, Mike, you've been a friend of mine for a long time and, and such a great mentor along the way and support system for everything going on in the community, whether it's with what I'm doing or anybody else. And I appreciate you always have always will never afraid to tell you that I love you like a brother. You are one of my favorite people. And I'm so happy that we met many moons ago over triumphs. So thank you for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, uh, this is a fun two episodes and, uh, yeah, I look forward to, if you want to do it again, we still have, we still have a whole lifetime of stories that we could go over. So, so thank you for having me and thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And now we're off to our last mailbag of the season. today's mailbag our last mailbag of the season we got a question from uh john from castor alberta thanks for listening from down there um what is your favorite bike well in this case i reached out to some of our board members as well because uh you know i've got a few but i'll try and narrow it down as well bruce weiss our director down in calgary um responded with his 1996 Harley Davidson, Harley Davidson Sportster because his wonderful uh, wife bought him that bike. So it is his favorite. Um, the rest of my board is like all of them. So they're not being very helpful. And for me, my favorite bike actually, oddly enough, is the one that I bought a couple of years ago, which is the uh, Pacific Matte Blue 2014 uh, Triumph Scrambler 900. Um, I've had a few, and I am also in love with the Indian FTR uh, 1200. But my Triumph Scrambler is my favorite bike. I've loved it since they came out with it, and then to get to own it and ride it has been a dream come true. So, uh, that is our show for today. Um, to to make sure you don't miss out on any upcoming podcasts, which we have our season finale next week, or to listen to previous ones available on all of the podcast providers, make sure you click subscribe or follow. If there's a topic you want us to cover next season, a guest you think would be great for the show, uh, mailbag questions or feedback for season four, let us know. You can connect with us on all the socials. Email us at info at ab-amss.org or reach out through the website at ab-amss.org. Again, next week is our season finale. Make sure you tune in for that. Always remember to ride smart, ride safe, and think bike. We'll see you out on the road. This series is proudly produced by the team at Road 55. Road 55 creates content that connects. For more information, check our website, www.road55.ca.